Hi folks, a very quick announcement before we get started on the episode this week. And that is a huge thank you to Katie Unicorn Stewart. I don't know if your middle name really is Unicorn. If it is, that is an awesome name. So the fabulous Katie Unicorn Stewart gave us a recent review on Apple Podcasts about the recent Governance Summit summary. So five stars for Take On Board, she says. Loved the recent Governance Summit summary podcasts. Super useful. Katie, happy to help. Thank you so much. And thanks for taking the time to do a review. So a little prompt for others that might be listening. I love it when I get reviews and you might get read out on the pod as well. So get in there and work out how to do ratings and reviews and let me know what you think of the pod. All right, on with the show. Hi, Take On Board people. Two announcements for you this week. Firstly, the next Take On Board live recording is coming up soon. And at this event, we'll be focusing on ESG, that's Environmental, Social and Governance Considerations for Boards. My guest will be Bryn O'Brien, Executive Director of the Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility. And she'll share an introduction to ESG and then we'll all get to ask some questions. Yes, you'll be part of that too. Early bird tickets close on the 4th of August and there's a link to book in the show notes. And a special shout out to Patricia Troll for suggesting the topic. Secondly, if all this talk of boards has you champing at the bit to join one, but, well, you're not sure where to start, then come and join the next board Kickstarter program in August. The group is already over half full, so getting quick. Together, we'll cover things like what sort of board should you be looking for? Where do you find them? How do you pitch yourself for a board role? Board resumes, board interviews, and going into the boardroom eyes wide open. Like the event, early bird tickets close on the 4th of August. There's a link in the show notes or get in touch if you want more information. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Take On Board podcast, where we talk all things boards and governance. I'm your host, Halia Svensson. Being on a board can be interesting, valuable and exciting. Yet it can also be really lonely, challenging and hard. So here at Take On Board, we'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you build your governance wisdom. We'll shine a light on how to navigate your way onto your first board or to build your board portfolio. We'll also help you to work through those challenges that keep you awake at night. Each week, I'll talk to women who have been there, done that, and together we'll discover what we need to take on board to be your best in the boardroom. Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking with Jennifer Dalitz about diversity and inclusion in both the boardroom and the organisation and the link between the two. And we might also touch on the relationship between risk and opportunity. First, let me tell you about Jen. Jen is a non-executive director of Kudos Bank and Surfing New South Wales, an alumni advisory board member to the UNSW Business School and a New South Wales divisional councillor with CPA Australia. She's the former chair and a board member of Peer Support Australia. Jen is the CEO and executive director of Women in Banking and Finance, where she is focused on growing and promoting the talent pipeline of women across the industry. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Jen. Thanks, Helia. Great to be here. It is awesome to have you, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. But before we go into the topic, before we talk about diversity and inclusion and all the things around that, let's dig a little bit deeper about you. 
Tell me, what was young Jen like? <laughs> young Jen uh, grew up in country South Australia. I was constantly getting report cards from school that said something like, Jen has uh, performed well and could have done better (laughs) had she been less disruptive in the classroom. So I guess that uh, teacher talk for saying I probably got bored easily and was, as a result, quite often given extra tasks along the way and extra projects, which is possibly where my love of project management comes along. They were swift to try and uh, redirect my energy, shall we say, into more productive pursuits than annoying all my classmates. <laughs> well, maybe, um, you know, being bored easily and in fact being a bit disruptive and, and continually speaking up, probably not bad skills to take into the boardroom many moons later. Oh, look, I think that's definitely true. And it's funny, I do reflect on those years growing up in the country and um, my dad worked on the land as a seasonal contractor and my mum worked uh, in the local preschool as as a teacher's aide. I was the first one in my extended family to go to university and I used to spend a lot of my weekends as a young kid. I was the youngest of three girls and I used to spend a lot of my time out on the land with dad and often on foot, you know, because we'd be doing jobs and, you know, he'd, he'd leave me and say, it, when my legs got too tired, he'd, he'd leave me pretty much in the corner of a paddock and say, I'll be back. Uh, and you would never know whether that would mean in five minutes or, frankly, five hours, which did actually happen, which, you know, as a parent in the modern era, you might think, oh, my gosh. But what it did teach me was that boredom exists and it's certainly true you have to have a degree of resilience in the boardroom and be able to push through those times when it's hard to sit still. Mm. Well, and even more so sometimes when we're on the, all of these virtual conversations these days as well. Not not quite the same as being left out in the back paddock, but uh, pushing through and maintaining that concentration yeah, is even more key, I think, when we're doing everything virtually. I tell you a funny story, Helia. The other day, I was on the way to a board meeting for Kudos, actually, and my son had been unwell, and he was in the car, and I, I was going to drop him at school and keep going, and it became pretty obvious he was not going to be well enough to go to school. So I said to him, "Well, oh my goodness, you'll have to come with me." And you know, so I kind of phoned ahead to tell everyone that, uh, well, at least tell the chair, the CEO and the EA that, uh, you know, my son would need to come to this meeting with me. And and when we arrived, he said, and, yeah, that was fine. He had his iPad and his books and everything else. He's 12, so he's fairly self-contained. But he said to me, um, as he's, you know, seating himself in the lounge and helping himself to all the refreshments, uh, thinking, oh, this isn't too bad, is it? You know, and sushi for lunch and this and that. And uh, But he said to me, Mum, are you serious? Do you actually sit for four hours in one meeting? And I said, yes, we do. And he said, doesn't it hurt? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, it does. You know, it's it's so, you know, we said at the start of this, we might end up down some um, rabbit holes. And I think this is exactly one of them. But one of the things I have found over the last 12 months with doing virtual meetings is I generally do them at my stand-up desk. And now going back to the actual boardroom and having to actually sit down for that period of time, I just can't do it anymore. So I've been standing up, 
you know, it gets an hour in, I'm like, I can't do this anymore. So I just stand up. The chair sometimes looks at me, you know, are you okay? It's like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I just can't sit down for this long anymore. So it'll be interesting. Maybe I need a stand-up desk in the boardroom as well. (laughs) Maybe we all do. You've given me an idea there. I think I might need to try that. Yeah, it's oh, it's hard. Yes. So to your son, yes, indeed, it's quite hard sitting down for that long. <laughs> you know, given we've now switched to talking about the boardroom, let's then switch to the actual topic of today. And it's diversity and inclusion. But, you know, you've got a slightly different lens to it in some ways. So, you know, in thinking about diversity and inclusion, maybe let's start with your journey to the boardroom. Tell us about how you started your own governance experience and what that has shown you or taught you or indeed taught others about diversity and inclusion. Yeah, um, it's interesting. My career into the boardroom started when I was working as an executive in um, the subsidiary of a major bank and I was running a very large division, about 200-odd people, and I was in my early 30s, decided I, I'd quite like to think about boards as a way to broaden out my experience. I was occasionally called on to speak in board meetings for the company and, you know, sort of saw what was going on and thought, I've probably got some skills to add this. So I did the company director's course with AICD and joined women on boards actually in, in their very early years right at the beginning really and actually that's how I obtained my first real board position if you want to call it the first real one. I'd been on a couple of advisory boards before that with the Australian Bankers Association and earlier with the UNSW Business School Alumni Advisory Board which I then came back to a decade or so later and then through Women on Board secured my first um, real board position with a finance and strategy portfolio with Peer Support Australia, which it was a pro bono position. And I, as we all know, it holds the same obligations and responsibilities though. So what I learned through that process is that they were looking to build out the diversity of the board. Um, The board had been all male when I joined for some time and quite a homogenous demographic. Uh, They were a a group of very committed older men who had um, been supporting the organisation for a long time, doing a great job, but recognised that Peer Support Australia being an education-focused foundation that improves the wellbeing of kids in schools, most of the stakeholders that the organisation deals with are teachers who are mostly female. So at that time, three ward members joined who were women. One had an education background and another one was a marketing um, bent, who I know you've actually interviewed Cheryl Heyman on one of your podcasts. So Cheryl and I were peers that joined at the same time and um, we've sort of supported each other in in our governance journey since then. And it was a really great way to start out my board career. It was a good opportunity to learn about a national not-for-profit organisation and it was also a good opportunity to learn about government funding and government stakeholder relationships Mm. and um, very, very, very good for learning about impact. That's a highly impactful program which reaches 
over half a million students a year through a very lean team. And that was in the early days of measuring impact. And so that was a really helpful skill to learn. And I did that in parallel with my corporate career and learned a lot about governance and the possibilities of building a board portfolio. And you became chair of that board, I believe. I did. Um, And that actually happened quite early on and um, a little unexpectedly. So, you know, we were talking, Helia, about before we jumped on the line in our preparation about how, and I think this is especially true of boards and governance. When I was off the chair at Peer Support and actually when I was approached about the board position at Kudos, both times I my initial response was the timing's not ideal. (laughs) And, and, you know, that's actually often the case in life, isn't it? That um, the timing's not ideal. However, Mm. you never really know when the next opportunity is going to come along. And so with peer support, um, it wasn't ideal because I was heavily pregnant with my son. It was my first child and and only child. And, And so I initially thought, oh, I won't take that on and then um, the outgoing chair ended up having another chat with me and saying well you know I'm sure we could find a way to support you and you know get you through those initial first few months and so I thought well look I'll just give it a go and that's all I can do and if it doesn't work out uh, then so be it but of course it did work out and I was chair for a number of years and again learned a lot of skills and I think, you know, when you become the chair, in, at any time when you're making that transition from being an executive to being a non-executive director, it's always a challenge. And I think particularly for someone like me who's had a management consulting background and a corporate background, so I've worked in and out of executive roles and management consulting mm-hmm. roles in my career, they're really kind of ha- hands-on doing roles. And so when you move to a directorship, you really have to recalibrate your thinking around who does what and you know I think I got some pretty good feedback around making sure (laughs) I let the people do the doing who were supposed to be doing the doing and you need to get that feedback in the beginning uh, often and that's where you know I think there's a mixed school of thought around whether pro bono or not-for-profit boards are the best Um, route into the boardroom or not you know a lot of people advised me to do that and possibly because of my age because it was a long time ago when I was in my early 30s but some of my male mentors said to me that they didn't think that was a good idea and that anytime I wanted to be a board director they would just make the introductions and that I should only go for paid positions so there you go Um, but that's not what I did I took that route and Also, it it enabled me to carry on with my career as it was, Mm. which was probably the thing I needed to do as well at that time. Yeah, it's an interesting conundrum, that one, Uh, the build the experience on a not-for-profit versus paid, although, look. I think there's pros and cons to both. Yeah, Um, I agree. And certainly there's not a lot of risk with going down the route of doing some pro bono positions and certainly in terms of building out your skill base. When I worked for a number of years after my son was born uh, as an executive coach and I don't do as much of it now but I did a lot of executive coaching for a while there and, you know, one of the things I used to recommend for executives who are feeling a bit stale or stuck is that 
a board position can be a really great way of giving back to a cause that you're passionate about. And for me, you know, peer support ticked that box. Um, the Alumni Advisory Board at UNSW Business School ticks that box. The Divisional Council at CPA ticks that box. And um, Surfing New South Wales also is pro bono and um, it, it ticks that box because it's all of them for different reasons, but things that I'm passionate about. So it's and and it's good fun too, which isn't a bad way to spend your time. <laughs> absolutely, and and whether it's paid or unpaid, I think you you absolutely need to have an interest at the very least in the organisation that you're on the board of, no matter what. Whether you're getting paid enormous amounts of money or or no money at all, uh, you need to actually be interested in it and passionate about it. You've reflected that the value of diversity and inclusion, both in the boardroom and the organisation, is important and it's linked. Can you talk us through that a little bit more? Yes. I became interested in diversity and inclusion. Well, really just gender diversity is what we were calling it back then, about 15 Mm. years ago when I was in that corporate role I described earlier, leading a large division. And I think I had about probably nine or so direct reports and about 200 people in the division and and I was all too often seeing you know really great women leaving to go on parental leave and just not coming back and within that organization as well I reported to the CEO who obviously reported to the CEO and so I had a really senior role and only one other person in our executive team was a female out of the 11 or also odd people that were on our COO's team. Um, at the CEO's level, he had a large team of direct reports, 13 from memory, and only one of those was a female. And so I just really at the time started thinking about or asking the question, I suppose, how could we be a financial services organisation seeking to increase our share of wallet across households when we didn't have enough people in my mind at the decision-making table to reflect our customer base. We know from research that in Australia, Macquarie Bank's done some good research into this space, looking at who makes the majority of household purchase decisions and who allocates disposable income in households. And over 80% of those decisions are made by women normally. So we clearly didn't have that right in our leadership mix at the time and, and, and I was confounded by this constant flow of amazing women who were coming through my division and not staying. And I remember on this one particular occasion, a particular high-performing woman, you know, when she came to say to me she would be leaving because she was going on parental leave and she didn't know when when or if she'd be coming back. And I was just exasperated thinking, why is this? You know, we actually even had an on-site childcare facility. She was saying, oh, but I can't get childcare. And I, I, I even rang up, you know, mm. can I come down and get this woman on the wait list? And they're like, well, no, of course not. I'm, you know, the wait list's years long. And mm. I, I just got really, firstly of all, exasperated, but then I switched to problem-solving mode thinking, you know, what could we do? What could we fix here to stop this flood of women out the door? And like most things in life, the more I learned, the more I realised how complex it was and became very interested in this this notion of gender diversity and how we could 
improve the mix of people in our organisation and keep the best talent there. I mean, attracting them wasn't really so much of a problem. It was keeping them and then bringing mm-hmm. them up through the ranks into the leadership roles. So it started off just as a, honestly, a, a personal endeavour that was to solve my own personal pain point. And then within the space of a couple of years, I'd just, I'd, I'd done a lot of research and realised how complex the problem was. And actually after a space of time, switched my management consulting practice, which had been predominantly uh, my background was in customer strategy and channel solutions in banking Mm. and finance and that of course is still a very interesting space and one which I reflect on in my board position but I um I switched to a consulting focus around gender diversity for a number of years and helped a number of organizations to set up their gender diversity practices and mm. actually became quite a go-to person and spoke in Australia and internationally and wrote a lot of thought pieces on that and did that for quite a number of years until I got some feedback one day from from a friend of mine saying, that last article you wrote sounded a little bit angry. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 I stopped and thought, oh, yeah, maybe I'm getting a little bit too close to this, and um, I, and 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 I paused to sort of draw breath for a little while, and and actually just went back to pure uh, financial services strategy in in my consulting work for a while. <laughs> but um, that would have been when my son was about four or so, I suppose, so about eight years ago, and I had a little bit of a break from it for a number of years, but in 2018. The um, the position of CEO at Women in Banking and Finance became available, and I was successful in securing that role. And have really enjoyed having the opportunity to come in and work with the sixty or so corporate members that are very focused on how they can make a tangible impact on gender diversity in their organisations. So not only banks, but investment managers professional firms that service the banking and finance industry, corporates that service the banking and finance industry like ASX and PEXA and also um, investment managers, super funds, um, the regulators. It's a real community of people all very interested in banking and finance and how we have more diverse and inclusive workplaces within them. So that's a really fun job to have as my main day job. You know, to come back to your risk point, I was successful in joining the board of Kudos Bank in 2019 and last year uh, in February 2020, (laughs) I'm laughing as I think about this, I was appointed to chair the risk committee. Um, You might all remember what was happening in February 2020. What a great time to take up that mantle. Well done you. Exactly. Yes. Little did I know what would lie ahead. But yeah, look, um, you know, I'm a CPA by by training. My undergraduate degree was in accounting, and and you know, I have an MBA, and I've done a lot of um, strategy work. So, you know, risk is a big part of all of the work I've ever done. And you know, when I worked in banking in my early career, I was a graduate in one of the big banks as my first, you know, really real job, I suppose. And so, risk in banking is is where you're at. Mm-hmm. But so is opportunity, and opportunity and risk go hand in hand. Um, both of them have to be managed in the same way. And you know, risk is actually what we forget a lot of the time is that risk management is also about 
ensuring you don't miss out on the opportunities which present themselves mm-hmm. and that you implement those opportunities or strategies in an effective way so that you actually realise the benefits that were intended. So yeah. if you overlay that context with diversity and inclusion piece, you can see that really where I was coming from in my initial thinking around trying to keep my workforce engaged and keep the good talent in the organisation was actually a risk management piece Mm. and an opportunity management piece. And definitely in women in banking and finance, it is totally an opportunity job. Uh, It's about ensuring those corporate members who are part of women in banking and finance have the very best people sitting around the table, that they're filtering up through the ranks, that we have a a solid pipeline of women coming up through the ranks. And this is particularly important because, well, there's a body of research that anyone can Google and read in great length about the value of diversity and inclusion. Um, It's particularly been researched in the boardroom because it's quite a controllable situation. You have a very clear handle on the number of people in board seats, the representation of women, and you can very clearly measure financial results that companies produce and you can draw some conclusions about the constitution of a board and the results that an organisation produces. And so if I say to an organisation, would you like to improve or increase your return on shareholder equity by 35%, usually the answer would be yes. (laughs) And it just so happens that those companies in vast big studies of thousands of companies, it's been shown that organisations with more women on their boards um, produce shareholder returns up to 35% stronger. So we can see that correlation in the boardroom and measure it quite easily what is has been harder to measure is sometimes the impact and the flow through in the executive level roles. Mm-hmm. And so that's really where our work comes in in women in banking and finance and, you know, we're working on that pipeline. And I think, you know, thinking forward and, you know, going back to risk opportunity, so France has just mandated and, and Germany also has started to look at this at legislating actually the number of women in executive level positions. So we've seen that, you know, many countries in Scandinavia and Europe have mandated uh, quotas for women on boards and that has produced a lot of results for the number of women on boards, but what it hasn't produced is significant change in the executive level ranks. And so those countries are now starting to turn their minds to the next level down, which is the executive roles And the reason they're doing that is that it's recognising that as countries, a lot of investment is put into educating women, giving them access to excellent education at school and in universities, and they enter the workforce and then they don't necessarily stay. And we know that any decisions that we make are more solid and often more robust if we've had different perspectives apply their thinking because it helps us manage risk, right? So the more people that you can ask in terms of what could go wrong here 
and people with different perspectives and different experiences and different preferences, the more you can cover off those risks. And on the flip side, the more you can explore what are the opportunities that you would look for and that you would pay for. So that's in my mind, you know, that's how I think of and have always thought of diversity and inclusion. And that's the value that I bring now in my board positions. It's yes, I do have that finance bent and, you know, and I'm happy to be the finance person, which is how I ended up as a non-surfer on the board of Surfing New South Wales. (laughs) (laughs) At the time, I was the only non-surfer. There's one other now. You know, I am the finance person, but I'm also coming at it from this perspective of how do we ensure that we, you know, we get the right people involved in the decisions that we make. These conversations go way too quickly. So we've covered off a number of different angles there around diversity and inclusion, your journey for yourself, but also the experience of some of your staff, that risk and opportunity lens, uh, some of the data and evidence and, and a range of things. What are the key things you want people to take away from the conversation that we've had today? Uh, oh, gosh, where do you begin? And you're right, the time goes so quickly, doesn't it? <laughs> I reckon we could talk underwater with our mouth full of marbles. But, um, <laughs> but I mean, I guess the thing I'd like people to take away is to think about um, what they're doing to ensure that whoever they're working with that everyone has the opportunity to have input. That's the inclusion piece. There is definitely a role for leaders to play, not only in choosing who sits around the table, but then ensuring that everyone's voices are heard. And so for me, diversity and inclusion, it's not just actually about gender. I I, I shared the reason why that was where I started, but it's much broader Mm -hmm. than that. I mean, I grew up in a family with an aunt who my mum's sister was Down syndrome, my grandmother my mum's mum was legally blind and so you know I have always had difference around me and the things I learned from those two amazing ladies as a child you know they've stayed with me over the years Mm. that everyone has strengths to bring and you know whether you are from a privileged background or a very um, working class background like I was. Um, You know, I've been fortunate to study all around the world, to work all around the world. And I think that that's because people have given me opportunities that uh, they saw something in me and they thought it was worthwhile to give me a chance, give me a shot. And Mm. that's what inclusion is. It's about recognising that people don't have to look like you to be able to contribute but they do need to be given a fair opportunity and and a fair chance to shine. And when we allow all those people to contribute, we're all better for it. And definitely in an organisational setting, um, that's how a company or an organisation truly performs is when each and every one of their employees and stakeholders for that matter are given the opportunity to to contribute and to be heard not not just in a tokenistic way but to truly listen and to truly allow people to participate and be part of something that's um that's where the magic comes is there a resource you would like to share with the take on board community I'm going to offer the take on board community a a movie recommendation so if people haven't seen it I'd love you to track down a movie that was released in 2020 called Girls Can't Surf 
And it's the story uh, told by an amazing group of world champion surfers about how they fought relentlessly, tirelessly, and with great passion and a few inappropriate words pop up throughout the movie. But I took my son to it. He loved it. So, um, you know, we went to a special screening. But it's about how the story about how female surfers came to be paid equal prize money as men on the professional circuit. And it only could happen when they were finally given the opportunity to surf on the same big waves as Mm. the guys. And it's a complex story that actually could translate into any context. And it's just Mm. such a good watch and beautiful, beautiful scenery. Can you imagine of of amazing beaches and waves and, uh, and the environment all around the world? So it's a great story of persistence and resilience and about systemic bias that works against Mm. people and about the fact that you know these women could not surf well until they were given good waves to surf on so go see it it's called girls can't surf you'll be able to track it down um um, online by now excellent and i'll see if i can put a link to it in the show notes to the um you know yeah to the movie itself which will no doubt then link off to where people can see it that is fantastic and I love that it's a nod to your boardroom presumably of um surfing New South Wales as well that is just fantastic I'll feature a couple of our um, world champion Australian surfers including uh seven times world champion Lane Beachley who is uh, actually the chair of Surfing Australia which Surfing New South Wales reports into fantastic well I haven't seen that movie yet so I'm going to look it up so That is a fabulous recommendation. Thank you. Oh, Jen, thank you so much for being here. You are absolutely right. I'm sure we could uh, have spoken for a bit longer. And one day when we can be in the same state together, we will continue the conversation over a glass of wine. But in the meantime, thank you so much for taking the time to share um, some of your insights with the Take On Board community today. I know people will get a huge amount out of it and out of the stories that you've shared. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Helia, and thank you for making this resource available for people as well. Um, Your podcasts are really amazing. Hi there, it's Helia. That's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together, so it's great to be able to share these conversations that I'm having with these amazing group of women with you. Now, can I ask a favour? Could you share this podcast with someone you know? Perhaps you can share it with some of your board colleagues or someone else that you know that's interested in exploring all things boards and governance. With your help, we can grow the Take On Board community. Last but not least, if you want to continue the conversation, you can also join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group where there's lots of great discussions, tips, tricks and resources being shared. I would love it if you can join in the conversation there. You can find it by searching Take On Board in Facebook. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another fabulous conversation.